What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys. Another episode of the GPP, the Gift of Performance Podcast, where we give you the information and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. Paul, what is so fucking funny? You know how I'm like never prepared for anything? I just read the first question. Perfect. <laughs> Paul, Paul comes strapped and ready. Everybody good? Everybody happy today? Just give me some nods. I'm the happy. I'm get good. It. You're the first. Life is good. All right. So today we are doing another of our kind of bodybuilding. -y. They're not really all bodybuilding questions. They're probably mostly like body composition improvement related questions. Um, so, yeah, we're doing another Q&A. All of our questions come from the great world of Instagram where world where life's best questions come from. Oh, quick shout out. Gift of performance apparel. Get all your custom apparel. Email gpjimmy at giftofperformance.com. Send her for your coupon code. The coupon code is double dicking69. You send her a video of you going like this, and you get 69, you get 69% off your order. If there's uh, real dicks, you get hey, you know somebody's gonna actually try this. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. We'll post what? them on the Instagram. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So our first question of the day comes from at Eric underscore andrew underscore <laughs> evans what paul <laughs> fucking question dude okay reading let, me fucking, let me read it before you lose it all right so the question is obviously in jest but we're going to turn it into an actual question so the question is are white cheddar cheetos a good flavor of cheetos acceptable intro workout so yes Obviously, they're acceptable intro workout. You can, I mean, you can do whatever the you can do whatever the hell you want intro workout. But let's rework this question, and I'm going to throw it to our nutrition guy Cam first. <laughs> acceptable intro workout. What do you suggest your clients use intro workout, if yes, anything? Cam, Cam is I mean, a fucking to, child. To be still. honest, <laughs> if someone really like one, I, I'm not going to care a whole lot. I'll, <laughs> Like, I mean, I'm probably going to recommend something like Gatorade that is probably going to be refreshing and have sugar and, and not like a 60 gram of protein, 100 grams of water shake to drink in the middle You'll of the workout. Find white cheddar Cheetos refreshing as fuck. Bro, <laughs> go to pick up a dumbbell and somebody gets their crusty ass Cheeto fingers on the hand. Their Cheeto dust. I'm coming to find this Eric Andrew Evans. <laughs> the man with three three first names. <laughs> all right, all right. But, no, I mean I get like all seriousness, if it if it were one of my athletes and they were really trying to get something out of an intro workout, I would probably say going with liquids are going to be your best bet to get some kind of, if possible, absorption within the quickest time period. But I mean, man, you know, if your food's high enough and you want to eat some cheddar Cheetos intro workout, I mean, I guess as long as you're still progressing, fine. I don't care. You do. You call me. <laughs> You actually bring up a good point with the liquids. So if you're actually eating something intra-workout, it should be digesting in that short time window over which you are working out. 
because of the macronutrient breakdown of white cheddar Cheetos. Yes, there's, you know, easily digestible carbohydrates in there, but they're also a very high source of fat. And we know that dietary fat slows down digestion. You might not even have digested and have those cheat. I can't believe we're fucking talking about Cheetos in this context <laughs> right now, <laughs> like breaking down Cheetos. But they not they might not even have made it into an area of the GI tract to where they could actually be absorbed by the time you're getting in your car to drive home from the workout. Dom, you look like you got something to add. Dom, get it. Santa. Um, uh, I drink an intro workout. I use uh, cluster dextrins. Cheeto dust. You blend up Cheeto, Cheeto. I have a Cheeto powder that's blended up. It's pre-digested, <laughs> so I just put it in my shake. Oh. But no, I drink. Uh, I drink cluster dextrins, EAAs, uh, sea salt, and citrulline when I train. I start drinking it before I train, and then as I'm at the gym, I finish it. But and like, you're, there's no point in like you, you see these guys eating like candy and stuff, and like it looks cool. Like, yeah, like eating a bunch of gummy bears for a deadlift or something, but it's not helping your deadlift. <laughs> you so, probably haven't even broke down like that gelatin we'll say, until like 20 minutes, 30 minutes later. Break down the ingredients in your intra-workout shake that you're using. Why do you choose each one? So why the cyclic drug dextrin? Why the citrulline? Why the sea salt? So I use the, the cluster dextrins because they, uh, they don't cause such a high insulin response. So it's kind of like a steady stream of of like absorbing the carbs. I use the citrulline for nitric oxide production, so like better blood flow, vasodilation. Um, I use sea salt just as we know the importance of salt, um, just with so many different mechanisms. And then um, what else did I say? Oh, EAAs. My thesis I did was on intra workout EAA coupled with a carbohydrate and like that hyper insulin state is the best time to consume amino acids so that you get the most absorption of them. Yeah. I've been drinking them since you, uh, probably I got a little bit before the surgery, I started doing it literally at first just to help get food in. But now even that my food is lower too, I've noticed my pumps and everything start sticking around near the end of the workout or almost really like, because I'll do what you do and drink it on the way there throughout the start of the workout. And you can honestly feel it. The pump's really coming on near the end of the workout where it would usually kind of fade off. Running through your veins. You could use beta alanine too. Um, I use that too. Just because that'll increase muscle carnosine. And uh, as we know, carnosine is like our first, it, usually during an exercise, it's like our first buffer to pH levels to stop fatigue onset. And um, carnosine itself, we can't really take because um, the enzyme that breaks it down is really high in our muscle tissue, but we can make carnosine from beta alanine. So um, you could use beta alanine too to like reduce onset of fatigue. Um, but I, sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't. I think people, the, people get really hyped up into buffers in bodybuilding. But I think like a lot of people don't realize how fastly we buffer hydrogen already. Like we buffer it so quickly that like in the lab, if we're doing like a VO2 max or something and we're, we're measuring blood lactate or whatever, like you have to get that within seconds. Cause if you wait too long, like the test is fucked. It's gone. Yeah. So like I think you're taking adequate rest breaks like that, I think that would be something that'd be more useful for somebody doing like, you know, what is it like uh like triathlon marathon well uh maybe but like uh what is it uh what do you crossfit quads and shit yeah uh, crossfit metcons shit like that yeah. yeah i think that there's so hear me out isn't there kind of a mechanism as to which you would want that onset of fatigue so as you accumulate lower ph levels fatigue onsets earlier so you're actually activating the higher threshold motor units earlier on into a set that's whereas 
Whereas if you supplemented with beta alanine or skipped that step and went straight to carnosine, you would delay that fatigue response and have to do more work to accomplish the same result. Does that make sense? That's yeah. a theory that I've heard thrown around. That's a theory. And I guess it just depends on what mechanisms of hypertrophy one you believe in uh, or actually do something. And then like what mechanism of hypertrophy you're going for. So like, yeah, if metabolites directly cause hypertrophy, then maybe you don't want to. But the other theory is that the increase in metabolites causes fatigue, which causes higher threshold motor units to activate earlier. Um, but I think a lot of the metabolite stuff is just still so much theory that we don't really know. And probably your best bet is to go for attention stimulus. Yeah, I would, I would probably agree with that. And getting tension on those high threshold motor units. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably the more likely of the two theories is that the fatigue is causing you to activate those. But guys, look at that. Look what we just did right there. White cheddar Cheetos. Now we're talking about high threshold motor unit activation. That's how we do it around here. Oh, the oh. only thing I want to throw in, because, and are, are you familiar with the carbohydrate uh, intro workout stuff and like endurance athletes and stuff? Yeah. Like yeah. time to exhaustion? Like mm -hmm. what, what is the, the mixture in those beverages? They're usually not that many carbs, right? Like 10, 15, 20 grams. I think it's, I think the recommendation is 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates for every 60 minutes of exercise. Okay. But that's like continuous movement. Like yes. onto exhaustion yeah. stuff. Yep. Like bodybuilders don't need that. No. Like a bodybuilder would probably be fine drinking 50 gram, 15 grams of carbs in their workout. Like, yeah. and I would, you know, if you want to be on the safe side, maybe like 25 or 30. But like, I see a lot of people doing like 50, 75, 100 grams of carbs in their intro workout drinking. I'm like, you don't need that, dude. You're not yeah, using that kind of fucking fuel in your training. Yeah, I was over 20, 25. Yeah, I think the biggest theory that got thrown around was like muscle blood flow distribution during training, like having the amino acids in there, having the carbs in there, having like citrulline in there because like of like the blood flow redirection that happens when we resistance train. So people were, the, the theory is like, oh, you can get more, be more bang out of your buck by having those amino acids shuttled there during the workout so they're already there when you're ready to start like i'm not know, even okay. worried too if somebody's going to eat something like cheddar cheetos or something that's not going to digest as quickly in your stomach uh is that if the digestion process is going to pull more water and i guess attention to digesting that food while you're working out well, well like, your the, blood flow is not going to be there at all. Yeah. Your that's that's, that's, that's the say. thing with intros, too, is that your your gastric emptying in, in general slows down a lot. Drastically, yeah. Which is why a lot of those endurance athletes, when they're trying to get those carbohydrates in, they aren't drinking a Gatorade, like just a straight Gatorade. They're drinking, like, a 50-50 Gatorade to water solution because as you increase volume, you increase the rate of gastric emptying. So they literally have to put a ton of fluid in just to get that to start to empty through so they can utilize some of those carbohydrates. But liquids are definitely with the, the way to go. Um, I have a funny story about this. So when I, when I trained at an LA Fitness in Orlando, this is probably like, this is probably like eight, nine years ago. There was a trainer that used to carry around this big bag of fiber one bars with his clients. And like in between sets of squats to failure, he would have them eat fiber one bars. Would he just like, like hold it to their face? <laughs> <laughs> and he was just hand, he was hand him out after set. This man, was like, this man was like sponsored by five for one or something. All right. Should we move it on? Eric Andrew Evans, your question has been answered. You're welcome. Three whoa, whoa, whoa. This is weird. This is weird. The next question also from someone named Eric. Super strange. This is the Eric episode. All right. The next question comes from Eric underscore l underscore dorado and eric asks is there a list of must-have supplements that you think people should have strange wording but you got the point uh regardless of where they are at in their fitness journey so this is a question that contextually encompasses casual gym goers 
all the way up to competitors. So maybe we just go around the horn and everyone just lists off their bare bones supplement list. So someone who's really on a budget, casual gym goer or competitor, what are the must have supplements? Paul, creatine, right? Ah, fuck you. <laughs> I hate creatine so much. Um, say me and Paul probably are not going to have very many answers to this one. And I feel like you and Dom might, might hit this one a little bit more. I like uh, generalists pretty short. Like a, mo- a lot of people, especially like in the region we're in, are low in um, vitamin D. So I think that's like a good general health one that's, you know, a safe bet. And then potentially like, uh, what is it? Um, essential fatty acids, fish oil, something like that, potentially, depending on the rest of your diet. And other any other vitamins that you may be somewhat deficit in or, you know, maybe electrolyte concoctions and stuff. But, yeah, I'm done. Uh, yeah. I do. Uh, I have people take vitamin D3. Um, I, I, I have a lot of people use K2, MK7 uh, just to help with, like, reabsorption of calcium. Helps, like, with arterial stiffening, just overall heart health. Um, and then a soluble fiber because most people don't eat enough fiber, just like a normal psyllium husk and then a uh, multi-mineral. Yeah, I'm pretty similar there. Paul hit it, the, the fish oil, some sort of, some sort of essential fatty acid. Um, make sure it's of a high quality. Uh, the podcast that Steve, uh, revive stronger did with Kamal Patel. He talks in detail about how to identify good sources of your uh, your EFAs. So how to source a good fish oil. I think he prefers, and I think it's because he's a vegan. He prefers like algae oil because it provides a similar what is it EPA DHA ratio as fish yeah. oil. Um, but it's obviously I like krill oil. I use krill oil. Krill oil is another good one. Um, yeah, he talks extensively about that, so I won't uh, I won't butcher what he said there. And I like to just give my people just a basic multivitamin um, on top of that as well, just so that their their bases are covered. I tell them try try not to go for the multivitamins that are mega dosed. So when you turn it around, you see the back and it's like ten thousand percent. Tell them that they are like quite literally pissing away their money, like they're just peeing out all those vitamins that they're paying for. So like, so like supplements, because I, I remember back in the day I used to take uh, animal, animal pack. Animal pack. <laughs> Good old animal pack. And like on the forums, they would always talk about like, oh, yeah, pack piss because like your pee would be like super, super high letter yellow. And all the people on the forums were like, oh, that's like that's how you know it's working really well. Like when you're when your piss is super, super high letter yellow, that means it's working. And my dumb ass, I was like 15 years old. I was like, all right, well, you know, why don't I just take two packs, get even (laughs) more yellow. Now it's working super, super well. And I wonder if that was like marketing by them. I had a client one time, he had 50, he had 50 milligrams of zinc a day in his program. He read it wrong and took like 50 Five milligrams, grams. I think four times a day. Ooh. And he just got, he just threw up consistently for like a whole day after he did that. Yeah. God. Yeah. Um, yeah. He took something like four or 500 milligrams of zinc in a day. When I was younger, like, like pre-middle school younger, my mom got me like the grown-ass man multivitamin. And I remember my piss would be that highlighter yellow up until like after lunchtime. And I remember before I knew what was going on, I would pee and then be in the bathroom and be like, guys, come over here. Look, look, look how cool this is. Wow. No, I think, uh, and I think one more that no one, no one mentioned because they don't want to make Paul mad, but that was, boo, shut up. Are you going to say collagen? No. We can talk about, we can talk about collagen. We can, because I actually have a client using that right now, Um, uh, was creatine. So creatine monohydrate. And listen, Paul's going to get mad because, and Paul's argument with 
people who advocate for creatine super strongly is a good one. So he has a solid foundation. He, he, his belief, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that people overhype the value of creatine. Like, if you're not taking creatine, you are missing out hugely, which is just not true. If you miss a couple days of taking creatine, oh my God, it's the end of the world. People stressing about how much should they take. Is this amount better than this amount? And Paul, I would agree with you that they're sweating variables that are extremely, extremely small there. So I have my clients take 0.1 grams per kilogram, saturate most creatine stores. It's one of those things that it's probably going to help. It's assuredly going to help. The amount that it helps is probably going to be small, but you know, 0.1, 0.2% improvement over uh, months and months and months. It, it, can, it can add up. Paul, did I, did I, did I do your, your point some justice there? You're I think so. Confused. I probably had some zeros in front of that, that one after the decimal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paul's grumpy. Paul's grumpy about the creatine. Um, I had one more. Oh, he does not like creatine. <laughs> so some research in like gelatin, collagen, glycine supplementation uh dom i don't know if you were eric paul if you've seen any of the the more recent research on this stuff so i have a client shout out to kevin what's up kevin i hope you're doing well I hope your knee feels good who was doing a pt test for the police and he came down over jumping a fence and he had a complete patellar tendon rupture just ruptured it straight through so i had to have surgery on that obviously and i've had him supplementing post-surgery with uh Covering all the bases here, you could argue that you only really need one of these. Uh, collagen protein, glycine, and um, some gelatin as well before his PT sessions. Some some research with vitamin C plus gelatin supplementation. I think that was like a jump rope study. They had them like jump rope after that. Um, but the theory being that specifically the amino acid glycine is a limiting factor in collagen formation. So the theory there, my theory there, um, is that if we superdose that, handle any deficiencies that may exist from the diet, you could potentially speed up injury recovery. That's my theory. Interested to hear your input. I mean, dude, on like when you talk about like, I guess, like basic sciences and theory, it fucking doesn't seem like it should make sense. But those studies exist, and there's a lot of positive anecdotes, so maybe there's something there. Definitely put it in the category of won't hurt, might help. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Eric, those are your list of supplements. Don't spend any money on any others. Don't get bamboozled <laughs> don't by the GNC. Yeah, don't go to GNC. No, GNC's out of business. They went bankrupt, didn't they? Oh, uh, yeah, but I think there. if you are a franchise owner, you are allowed to stay open. Oh, ain't that a you bit. You independent. Hey, Ryan, I guess uh, with that collagen stuff, I'm assuming you would want to take that on a mostly or completely empty stomach really far away from food, right? So that you didn't get some, it'd be like taking L-tyrosine for dopamine or some other precursor to something else. If you have a bunch of other proteins with it, then it might not go to that specific use, I guess. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why a lot of people drink like um their like uh bone broths on a completely empty stomach. Because that's that whole that's that same concept with like collagen formation with the bone broth, like drinking that on an empty stomach, not eating for like an hour or two after. Cause I think the bone broth is really rich in gelatin, right? Gelatin, yeah. Yeah. So that's with the protein that you're looking for. My most used over-the-counter supplement. Advil. I keep that thing on me. Nicotine. <laughs> Medicine. Hey, you better you better track the sugars in that. I yeah. do. I do. <laughs> Trying to get shredded or not shows up without shredded glutes on stage, and we're like, it was the fucking Alka-Seltzer. Shredded glutes now. <laughs> all right eric there's your answers there's your supplements go buy them don't buy any others our next question um hmm. i think we already talked about kind of carbs around workouts so we might come back to this one all right so we'll skip that one we're gonna go with at j coops j coops asks how to manage hunger 
with an average deficit. And then he adds the caveat that fiber and protein are accounted for. So plenty of fiber and protein. So to clear up maybe a little bit of confusion on that one, um, does anyone want to talk about the role of fiber and protein on hunger over the course of a diet and where you personally would set those numbers for maybe someone who's casually dieting versus someone who um, might be doing like a pre-contest phase? Who wants to jump on it? <sighs> guys. Paul looked like he was going to start. Paul looks excited. He's excited to be here, guys. Well... I don't know, man. I mean, I guess the fiber thing, like, <clears throat> I go with, like, the standard recommendation. I believe it's, like, what, 10, 11 grams per 1,000 calories. But there's no – the weird thing about fiber is, like, even though there's a standard recommendation, that's not to say you're going to get any negative consequences for going much over that or below that. Like, obviously if you just jump to like a hundred grams of fiber a day, like you're probably going to have some issues, but you can have more or less, you know, if you do find that helpful and, uh, with protein. So I'll, I'll usually do about a gram per pound or somewhere around 1.2, 1.25 grams per pound. But I personally, I don't find protein all that satiating outside of when you're eating a shit ton of it. It's kind of like boring. Like I think the protein stuff where they find it satiating is when like people are under eating protein, then they eat like a good amount of protein, but then going much above that might not be any more satiating. Would you agree with that, Ryan? Absolutely. Yeah. So let me let me shift the goalpost here. Just come bring up something completely unrelated. You know who doesn't bitch about hunger during a prep is fucking bro dieters because yeah. none of their food tastes good. And it speaks to your point, Paul, is that when food is super boring, like eating, you know, a ton of protein in one sitting and it's not like seasoned all crazy. So it's super, super delicious. I have personally found that I'm not as hungry throughout the day. When I reel back the palatability of my food, my hunger is super under control. So, the, the clients that I work that suffer from the worst hunger are the ones that are like, well, my lunch was a Quest bar. And then, you know, my dinner was this like protein pancake waffle mixture with taco with G butter and syrup and I roll, yeah, I rolled it up and made it like a cheesecake taco out of it, but it was like this fucking big. Yeah. So I think a lot of that hunger stuff comes back to like how palatable is your food? How tasty is your food? That's, that's really how I wanted. I, I hated the way you threw the question at me, making me set numbers for things. Cause I really oh, wanted to just Paul. answer the like, Hey, how do you help manage diet and start off with, Sometimes you're just going to be fucking hungry. Like that's that is true. Like you're, if you're not hungry, you're, you're probably not dieting very well <laughs> or like getting towards your goal in a very, uh, what is it? Timely manner. There's going to be at least a little bit of hunger. And sometimes there's, there's going to be a lot of hunger, but going with what you said, trying not to eat hyper palatable foods, keeping it somewhat boring, somewhat stale keeping it somewhat um, regular, like not having a shit ton of variation from day to day in your food types. Um, eating volume is really good. So uh, rather than focus on just sheer fiber numbers, because I've found just focusing on getting fiber numbers up isn't really as helpful as eating like uh, voluminous like veggies and fruits and stuff. So you might not get a shit ton of fiber from 100 or 200 grams of lettuce, but that will kind of go far in terms of at least feeling full for a little bit. And then another thing I just want to mention real quick is uh, that a lot of us find uh, benefit in utilizing diet breaks and or high days. Sometimes high days make people more hungry the days after. For myself, they always made me less hungry and made me ready to hit another diet, uh, dieting period when I had two or three high days in a row. Really great. 
and then just having that week-long period where you're at maintenance, maybe slightly under or slightly over, or longer. Sometimes you can have a longer diet break that lasts several weeks. Okay, I'll pass it on. And Dom, Dom, what do you think the biggest driver of hunger in a prep is? Cam, go fuck yourself. Um, I think a lot of it is psychological. I think a lot of people, when they start a prep or start a diet, they have this notion of, I'm on a diet. So I'm going to be hungry or I'm going to have these things happen to me. I think they go in with this mentality, like expecting all these things. So they start feeling them at the same time. And um, I think I think if you could psych yourself out or just take it like, hey, this is my day to day. We're lowering calories. Nothing has changed about my life. Just my targets have changed. I feel like I wouldn't be as hungry. Um, Dude, I want to I want to converse that. I think it depends on how you look at it. You know, for instance, the, I've been through so many diets that now I'm like, I'm going to be hungry. But it's okay. Versus like some people are like, oh, fuck, I'm going to be hungry. This is going to suck. And then when they do get hungry, they fight it. And they're like, how can I not be hungry? And they try to pull every trick in the book out to not be hungry. Yeah, yeah. I think some of them go in just expecting so much hunger, expecting so much like misery, I guess. But they I think a lot of it is like just self-induced. Like they make themselves feel like that. Um like what I do for hunger too with some people, like I'll tell them like, sit down, have your protein and carb, and then drink some water. Twenty minutes later, have the veggies of that meal, and like you know, or break your meal down into you know two smaller servings, like a half hour apart. That way, like you know how sometimes like when you're like super hungry and like you start eating, you could stop and then not be hungry but still have some left over and then just eat that about 20 minutes later and you'll stay fuller. So like if, if I'll have somebody that's like has a pretty decent meal where it's like a protein, a carb and like a fat with veggies, I'll tell them like, Hey, eat your protein and fat together. And then 20, 30 minutes later, eat the carb and veggie together. That way, like their meals went from five a day to eight a day so that they're, they're able to keep their stomach volume full throughout the day. That makes a lot of sense because I can get really hungry. Like I feel like a lot of meals ramp up my hunger before my hunger comes down. Yeah. yeah. Um, something uh, that when you said psychological, that sparked something in my mind in terms of, uh, fuck, I forgot. Never mind. Cam, you had something to add. Go for it. <laughs> One thing I was going to say and something that I've observed through. Wait, before I forget, when you said. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Staying busy, like not being fucking bored. Okay, I agree. And I agree. Cam, you're allowed to go now. Um, So (laughs) what I was going to say is one thing I've noticed through observing people going through diets, talking through people and just getting feedback um, is when you start noticing things with hunger and people start trying to do weird things, it doesn't usually just come all at once. It kind of comes as a downward spiral. You'll see somebody do maybe like one little thing or they'll do maybe one little recipe or you start noticing maybe they post like one super crazy looking dessert or something on their story and you can just slowly see that trend starting to pick up and just transition into it being, oh, they just thought about it like one time, but now they're starting to get fully immersed in this society of food focus. And got to cut it out, man. Yeah. You got any recipes? You don't get fucking recipes. Eat your chicken, rice, and lettuce. And and another thing I'll say too is, um, you know, Dom was kind of talking about when people get into their diets that they get into this mindset, oh, I'm dieting now, right? And there's a lot of times where I've been prepping somebody and they get maybe six to eight weeks in through the contest prep so far. And they're like, I don't even feel like I'm dieting yet. And sometimes people almost come off as like, yo, like I can push it. Like we can make it hard. Like I got more. And it's like, yo, if we do this right, it's going to be hard regardless. Like we don't need to make it hard this early on out and push unnecessarily. So what I would say is 
at the start of your diet while your hunger is down still, I wouldn't necessarily start throwing in more dense calories just to make up your day, even if you're not hungry after eating them. I would still keep things in there that are full, that's keeping your appetite down and ride that out as long as possible, even if your appetite is completely shit at the start of the diet, because you know whether your food is high or low, once you reach a point of body fat that's below a setting settling point and you're holding that for an, an amount of time, like your hunger is gonna come up regardless of where your food is just because your body fat's low. I always tell people that too, the start of a diet is the best time to instill good habits. Don't try and instill good habits when you're hungry as fuck. Yeah. Like the only thing that I, I would say someone should try to do to be struggling at the start of the diet is making their foods voluminous so that they're not hungry. Well, that was me in this last dieting phase towards the end when I got really hungry. I was like just volumizing through vegetables and not tracking them. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually, let me actually revisit the question here. So the question itself asks how to manage hunger with an average deficit. How much hunger sh would you guys expect with what someone would classify as an average well, deficit? Well, how do we define average? That's what I'm saying. Like if it's a girl that's like, oh, an average deficit is minus 500 calories. Well, that's 30% of your fucking calories. Like, um, Yeah, I, I don't know if I would call that an average deficit for a girl. Yeah. No, 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 but like if we defined average, like if somebody because like somebody might be like, we probably wouldn't call an average deficit 500 calories, but like the general population might be like, oh, what do you do when you try to lose weight? 500 calories, one pound a week. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, think I would say like 10, 10, 12 percent total calories about average. I mean, honestly, I feel like in an average deficit, you really shouldn't have hunger. You might be eating like two calorie dense of foods where the volume just sucks and that's why you're hungry or your macro distribution might just be bad or it just they may have just dieted for a long time because you know by body weight like throughout most of my last diet um i was i just stayed at 10 to 12 percent sometimes seven percent deficit but so we could call that average, but because of the length of time dieting and what happened to my body composition, I'm now hungry as fuck, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say I agree with Paul in terms of how long someone's been dieting, but also what their body fat percentage is, because I would I say you the, are. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the, the biggest like contributors to your hunger through a diet or just anything are really going to be, you know, your body fat percentage because leptin, the hormone that keeps you full is secreted through fat. So if your fats, if you're, you don't have a lot of fat on you, you know, your leptin levels are going to decrease, um, as well as, you know, potentially your insulin sensitivity too. Which well, is that's gonna... why I mentioned, um, taking, because it could be a body fat issue, but they may increase their calories for one, two, four, eight weeks, just do some kind of diet break and be like, you know what, like increasing my food a little bit, like I feel good here. Like I, and I can start dieting again. You know? I've also noticed too being more, no, I've noticed people being more hungry, um, with higher carbs and lower fats and sometimes being able to pull their carbs down and give them calories through their fats can sometimes slightly buffer hunger a little bit. And I think that just also comes back down to the, the insulin response that you get with the carbohydrates. Potentially. Sweet. All right, Jay, we have tackled your question from every imaginable angle and angles that you didn't expect the old sneaky reach around. That's how we got you. All right. How about some exercise selection questions Two from Mr. Balo fit. We'll start with chest first. So Paul and I were kind of talking about this yesterday. So Balo Fit asks overall for chest growth, dumbbell or barbell bench, flat bench, and then the use of things like paused reps, tempos, and touch and go. So let's tackle the first one first. Uh, dumbbell barbell bench, preference for hypertrophy, why you might choose one over the other. So I, I want to start with why one of the, in, in what program do we just do 
one exercise, especially this guy, I want to say he's more of an advanced client. He's your client, right, Cam? He's mine. He's yours? Yeah. So he let's say, a, let, he let's, let's, let's say he's, let's well, say like, he's building a home gym and he can only choose. I can only afford, I can only afford dumbbells. I can only afford barbell. Which one do I go with, Paul? I would go with barbell. Now, I will say like, you're probably, most people, if they are executing well, are, may feel, feel their, their pecs more on a dumbbell bench press because your your arm is more free moving and you can kind of emphasize that chest contraction throughout that movement whereas you're uh just sort of stuck in a position on barbell bench press but like the problem with dumbbells is like the the reason why i say why go with one is that they both have pluses and minuses that make them really work really well together within a program with a barbell you're not going to be limited in load like you might be with dumbbells you can go up usually in smaller increments and uh over time you can just add just consistently add load to the bar whereas a dumbbell movement and, and another uh benefit of like say like a dumbbell movement is uh one you can feel it really well but also you can get a larger range of motion more stretch stuff like that but you are probably going to be limited both in like your poundage jumps and how heavy you can go and even if you had limitless dumbbells at some point getting those dumbbells up into position is going to be a pain in the ass right so i would use both um in various or like for like a for maybe a beginner or something i would probably use like barbell bench press well, I guess it can go either way, but in general, I would say start with like your your stronger movement that's not limited in sort of load and load progression, and then do the movements that you feel a little more after. You're muted. Oh, I am muted. Sorry. Saying something. And now you're really quiet. Uh, am I really quiet? Am I yeah. louder now? Yeah. Yeah. My back. All right, we're back. We're back in action. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because that's like always the false dichotomy that people draw, right? It's like, yo, I gotta choose dumbbells or barbell. It's like, does your gym have both? Yeah, yeah, they got both. Why the what? Why are you limiting yourself? Now, I think I prefer I think I prefer the dumbbells because of the greater range of motion in that, especially in that stretched position. I think dumbbells keep people a little bit more honest in their load progressions just because there's a lot more ways to cheat a barbell bench, in my opinion, than there is to cheat a dumbbell bench, just from getting the dumbbells in position, to bouncing it off of your chest, to using more leg drive, things like that, that are gonna actually take away from the movement itself. So I tend to go for the dumbbells more than I go for barbell, but that's not to say that, I mean, you see my clients tagging me all the time and stuff, they're doing plenty of, of barbell benching work as well. I think they're both, they're both good variations. Swap them out every three to four mesocycles, get stronger over time, and I mean, you'll check that box of progression. Yeah, I, me, Paul and I tried doing barbell with me for a little bit. I got some like armpit nagging pain from it, and then I we decided to pull it. But now, like he was saying about the dumbbells, like I'm, I ran out of weight at the gym now. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go to the sister gym to use the heavier dumbbells now. And like, those are, yeah, like he said, they're just a pain to like, like I have to have one guy carry one and put it on my leg while I grab the other one. Yeah. But overall, I do like a dumbbell press. It just, for me, it's a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, I, I think for those <clears throat> who may uh, have prior sports backgrounds that may have played in more aggressive sports and have a lot more nagging injuries coming up, um, a little bit more versatile to try and work around some of those, uh, I guess, injuries or nagging areas per se. Um, and, and I do like with the dumbbell, the, the stretch that you can get a little bit more sometimes than a barbell with being able to change your grip throughout the movement um, or rotating the dumbbells a little bit. You can't do with a barbell. Uh, but yeah. yeah. I mean, you, they're like people like me. Like I, I am at the point now where dumbbell movements have to be a third movement. So we didn't even bring up machines, but I really like honestly some machines because of how they track in a similar way that you can do with dumbbells. So like I'll do a barbell press, then I'll do a machine 
and then a dumbbell because even as a secondary movement, I'll run out of dumbbells within like a couple months, you know? So basically whatever you do, get good at it, run it into the ground. And if you're made to be big, you'll be big. <laughs> when you stop getting better at it, switch over to something else. Now, how about the use of things? We'll stick with bench, obviously. Stick with bench. Uh, Things like pause repetitions, tempos, touching versus touch and goes. So I'm personally a big fan of pauses, big fan of tempos. I try and put as many things in the program as possible to artificially limit the amount of load that can be used without decreasing the stimulus that you're placing on the muscle. But I'm interested to hear your, your guys' input as well there. I think they're great, man. Um, I think... One of the, I don't think tempos are inherently enter any better or bring a better stimulus. Um, because what, what you're talking about there is it, let's say we keep load the same. Like if you add a tempo, you're just doing less reps to reach fatigue. If you're not using a tempo, you're just going to do more reps and reach a similar amount of fatigue. Um, but there is some differences in hypertrophy between like longer eccentric contractions and stuff like that in, in terms of the type of hypertrophy. But like um, what I like tempos for is to teach people to emphasize all parts of the movement. So to not drop at the bottom of a hack squat and to actually, Oh, do like at least like a two or two second negative or something. Um, because when you give somebody tempo regularly, what they notice is after four or eight weeks of training, you pull out their tempos. They're like, Oh shit, I'm still doing these tempos that has been ingrained in their lifting. Um, but I know, I think that's a great, so like anytime I do, uh, dumbbell presses for the sake of limiting, uh, how quickly I run out of weight, I'll use tempos. Um, I'll use tempos now on because I've gotten pretty strong on um, dips. So last or uh, the end of the last program, I started incorporating tempos because I'm gonna hurt myself if I just keep adding load to those dips. Um, and yeah, I think those are really the points that I hit with tempos, emphasizing all parts of the movement. Um, in places where load progression may be limited, especially on those machine presses, and then um, safety. Yeah, I think tempos. I think tempos are good for uh, not only like keeping somebody honest with the movement and things like that, but in their non-tempo movements, I feel like they still try to incorporate a tempo almost, where their non-tempo movements aren't just touch and go. They, they have a little bit of like there there's they, if they just did a movement that had a tempo and they go to the next one and there's no tempo they still have a slight tempo to the movement just because they're getting used to training with tempo um that's what i've noticed with myself like if i have something that's a tempo the next movement might not have a tempo but i still do it almost like there is a tempo to it and it just makes you more you start exercising more control and lifts that yeah tempo almost yep. like you're more aware aware of like the areas of the lift and sectioning them apart you know what i mean and what you qualify as like what you would call a good rep changes yeah yeah i think tempo also provides a way for you to add overload from mesocycle to mesocycle by extending some of these tempos but something i wanted to add run run by you paul was where do you think the upper limit is on extending those tempos because you'll see some people post and they'll say you know i'm doing uh i'm doing a back squat or a hack squat whatever it is with you know a five second eccentric a three second pause a four second concentric and then one second pause at the top when does become when does tempo become too much do you think i think there's one there so when we talk about tempos more often than not, if somebody says they're doing a five second tempo and you you watch their video and you count out their tempo, it's three seconds. Yeah. So a lot of times we don't even need to worry about tempos getting too long unless somebody's attempting to do like a 10 second tempo. For sure, that is excessive. I want to say, wasn't there some research showing that doing and especially when you're doing tempos on concentric actions, there are very few places I would put tempo on concentric portions of a lift. Usually I would put them on an eccentric where people are most likely to just kind of like let a weight go. 
Um, and then when it comes to pauses, there are some reasons to do extended pauses. I think Tom argued about one in terms of positioning and getting better at a front squat and stuff like that. But generally, when you pause, people get out of hand with pauses. When you pause, in most cases, all you're trying to do is sort of um, get in the way of that stretch shortening cycle reflex and just stop the weight. So literally, as, how long does that take to, to do that? A second, half a second, like you don't need in most cases to do like a three second pause, you know, just stop the weight one second, push it back up. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I thought Dom was going to say something, but oh. he just hit us with a nice, a nice, beautiful yawn there. But no, that's, that's a good point on the, on the pauses. What's the point of the pause? The pause is to dissipate that, you know, stored elastic energy that you're going to be using through the concentric. So how long does that take? It takes as long as it takes for you to stop the entirety of your momentum in whatever direction that you were going. So, yeah, that's the, it doesn't need to be a five second pause down there. Hey, it's me, the guy that once did a 405 30 second pause, a 500 five second pause on back squat. Why did I do it? Not to get big quads. I did it because I'm a fucking idiot. I the think one thing I might say, do you think that that would change if you were doing an isometric hold? So let's say. You were doing a spoto press or maybe a double pause on something. Do, do you think it makes sense to do on uh, something longer than just enough time to get rid of that elastic energy? From a hypertrophy standpoint or from like a skill acquisition standpoint? Um, let's go with both because you are increasing from, time under tension for hypertrophy. So from a time under tension hypertrophy standpoint, what's going to happen is as you extend the isometrics, you're going to move the point of fatigue sooner into the set. So you're going to do less reps. So you might have extended the isometric to three seconds versus one second. You end the set at six repetitions, whereas before you ended the set at, you know, 10 or 12 repetitions. What happens is that fatigue is you know, occurring roughly at the same time point. It's just the amount of repetitions that it took to get you there. So if your goal is, hey, you know, let's let's reduce the number of repetitions, the number of exposures to the movement for, you know, one reason or another, then yeah, extend those isometrics. But if it's from a hypertrophy standpoint, then you really just need to do exactly what you said, which is just pause long enough to dissipate any of that elastic energy. From a skill acquisition standpoint, yeah, I think that there is some point to extending isometric pauses just to let people feel specific positions. So what does the bottom of a front squat feel like? What should it feel like? Where should my elbows be? Where should my thoracic spine be? Where should I be at this moment in time on this movement? Because the more time you spend in that position, the more ingrained that position is going to be and it's going to feel more natural. So I'll have some of my Olympic weightlifters that catch cleans and they're like super far forward. I'll just have them do like five, 10 second um, isometric pauses on front squat. Like this is what it's supposed to feel like. Drive your elbows up, extend your thoracic spine, shrug up into the bar. This is what it feels like catching a clean and being solid at the bottom and then stand it up. It's not a hypertrophy thing. It's not a strength thing. It's just a pure skill acquisition thing. I, I think another thing with tempos that are really beneficial too is just helping you learn how to brace and change direction with the inertia of the load that's, that's coming down, whether you know, you're working with a tempo for a little while and then take it out. You know, you're going to be a lot more, I guess, equipped to handle that inertia when it comes when there's not that tempo there and coming out of it. Yeah, it can give you some time to work on certain cues that you might focus on in uh, the eccentric portion of a lift too. Yeah, I just like the habits that tempos build, especially early on with, with clients. I'll tempo the shit out of people. Yeah, I think tempos are like a foolproof way to make sure that someone doesn't have complete dog shit form or if they do, teach them how to use um, yeah. actual correct form. That's but, you, it's, a nice, it's a nice humbler too. It very. You know what there. sucks though is sometimes when you're working with a smaller, weaker individual and I like run into this with a lot of females where I want to add tempo, but like I can't add a tempo on a lateral raise when they're lateral raising 15 pounds. Five without, pounds. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 15 pounds for a small female is actually like a really good lateral raise. Whoever you're talking about props to them. That's, that's a pretty strong lateral raise, but, uh, all right. We did one on nutrition. We did one on supplements. 
We did one on hunger. That was kind of like a hunger psychology kind of nutrition question there and an exercise selection. So we've hit a lot of bases. Let's hit one more and let's go from a psychological standpoint. Very meta question here. It comes from at Andy underscore Fortin, Fortin, 53. Uh, Andy asks, how do you know if you're mentally prepared to do a show? This would be a long fucking question. Let's <laughs> let's twist. He's my client now. All right. Well, he's your client, so you take it off first. Dom, wants, how do you know? He, he wants to uh, do his first show. And well, just like you're you fucking ready. Nah. If uh, I don't know if you guys see, I've been posting a lot about like, don't let it sound like a good idea. Make sure it's mentally a good idea. You want to be mentally prepared before you jump into any kind of journey, right? Then. You know, I got some backlash, too, that people were like, well, how do you know if it's not just a bad idea if you don't just try it? And I was like, well, there's a difference. You have to be prepared to just do it, whether it's a good idea or not. I'm telling you, just be prepared to do it. So uh, so then he, he asked me this question. How do you know if you're mentally prepared to do, I would say, your first show? You kind of know when it's your second, third, fourth, fifth, like if you're ready to jump into a prep. But I think mentally, you have to be ready, in my opinion, to do some things that you've never done before, as far as it comes to like dedication. You know, you might have to reach a level of selfishness that you've never experienced, and you might not want to experience, but you have to come to terms with that before you commit to this, because there's going to be times where you're at your, your aunts or your uncles or whatever. They offer you something and you have to say no because you can't eat that. And, you know, people get into like, well, I didn't want to be rude. So I ate a little bit. I missed my meal later in the day to make up for it during contest prep. In my opinion, that that that's a no go. That's a big no. In a lifestyle program. Yeah, we can get away doing things like that. But as a contest goes, you have to be prepared to be selfish. And I think that's number one. Um, you know, if it's truly important to you, then that's something that you're going to have to do. Um, and then you have to be mentally prepared to be at a fatigue level that you've never experienced and how to make sure your normal everyday life doesn't get dragged into prep. So I always told people, like, keep prep out of work, keep prep out of your relationship. Prep is its own thing. You can't drag prep into your day job because you're going to suffer on your career or whatever you're doing. And that's why another thing that I always try to tell people, like you have to be mentally prepared to just separate the two, because if you don't, your prep is going to cause things in your normal life uh, completely like uh, just a disaster. So we actually recorded a Q and a video. I had to look it up on, I'm over on my other screen right now. Um, the title of the video is, Are You Ready to Get on Stage? Cam, Paul, and I did it. I think it's a really, really good video in terms of being ready to compete from the psychological standpoint, like you just tackled, but also from like a financial standpoint, from a work standpoint, from a social. Um, but yeah, I think when I, and when I read this question, I think, how do I know if I'm mentally prepared to do a show? I think if you're really questioning your mental readiness, like, Man, like I, if, if the thought in your head is, man, I don't know if I'm ready, like I, I don't I don't think you're ready. I don't I just yeah. don't think you're there yet. You're not at that point. I think it has to kind of be like a, almost like a second nature thing. Like you just got to flip the switch on Cam could but, tell me tomorrow. Hey, you're dieting. All right, cool. Like yeah. I didn't even have to think about it that I think that's the kind of attitude and mentality you have to have when approaching doing a contest prep, especially your first one, you know, you don't want to go into it like, Oh man, am I going to be able to handle this? Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to, you just, you're loading yourself up with self doubts just from the start. And there's a certain level of kind of like self-education that you need to do on the front end of a prep to know what to expect, which is why you want to get yourself with a good coach, someone who has either gone through preps with people before or done a prep themselves because they know what to expect. So you know, schedule a consult call with your with your coach, have them walk you through everything that's going to be expected of you in prep, because this question could also come from a standpoint of just like, 
not knowing what actually goes into a bodybuilding prep. Like, what is the diet look like? What does the training look like? What am I going to feel like? And then once you understand all of those things, what's going to be expected of me over the next, you know, 18, 24, 30 weeks, if it's a really long prep, then you kind of say, all right, am I mentally prepared to do this show? Do I have the structures in place? Am I in a good position with my work or education, with my social life, my friends? Do I have the support structure? Is my my wife, my husband, my significant other going to be on board with this? Do I have the money to make this happen? Do I have the time? Dom mentioned fatigue. That's another big one. And kind of once you've answered all those, your doubts or your questions should probably show themselves out, should see themselves out at that point. Paul, just going through kind of your first prep, maybe you can kind of shine some light on things that like maybe you didn't expect as you went along. Um, maybe some things that you weren't prepared for. Um, I, I would say I feel like just because I've done so many diets in general in the past and some of them harder and probably reaching into a leanness that you would say um, is appropriate for that tail end of prep. Like I feel that I had there wasn't much that was unexpected, but there was stuff that was still like even if it's expected, it's still hard to deal with, you know trying to keep everything else in your life together during that time period yeah. where work becomes harder, focusing thing on things become harder. You're maybe more irritable and uh, you're spending more time on work and trying to split up your time between people that are important, people you work with, stuff like that. It can get really hard. And when this question is asked, um, honestly, the, a lot of this, um, the prep diet, until the very tail end was a lot easier than a lot of my previous diets because I have had so much practice dieting and learning strategies and sort of growing with myself over diets. So I think that's something to look at too. You know, how many diets have you done getting within that sort of shooting range and have you developed like strategies and learn more stuff about yourself over time? And honestly, the biggest thing that comes to my mind, like, just because I know that this is something that I've struggled with and a lot of I have to assess with a lot of clients, um, kind of like what going with what Dom said, if Cam asked Dom to diet right now, tomorrow, Dom has no, he'd just be like, yes. And when I think about that question, even if like Cam was like, hey, you want to do a mini cut next week? I'd be like, fuck, no, there's no way I can't do it. I'm still struggling with my last coming out of my last diet. I'm still struggling with not overeating and some, some of those uh, issues that come along with dieting hard. So, um, just sort of, I think that's just a really big portion of that even to begin with, because if you don't have that part, like if you can't say like, yes, or you're not over the, uh, you know, dieting fatigue, you're still struggling with dieting or whatever from your last diet, or just being overly restrictive on yourself, even if you haven't been dieting, like it, you're not even making it to the tail end of prep. You're getting like yeah. six weeks into your prep and you're like, I can't do this. Or your coach is like, we're not doing this because if you cheated four times in two months, like. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. So I think that when we look at it from a first ever prep standpoint, it's more of a am I psychologically ready thing? And then like Paul mentioned, going into your second prep not your first where it's psychological, your second, it's more of like a physiological thing. Like, are you physiologically ready? Have you recovered from a physiological standpoint enough to jump back into what's going to be a, a very challenging diet? Um, anything to, anything to add on that one for old Andy? Um, we could talk about like, you know, just not mentally, but you know, financially, I think that's a big portion of what a prep, like, I, I feel like I end up, I've, I've I've seen people not finish prep just because financially they couldn't do it anymore. I think people underestimate the actual cost of a prep um, or they go into prep maybe with not the best stable income. And they, you know, I feel like a lot of people when they say, Hey, I'm going to prep, that's it. They have to do everything just to make sure they get on stage. They, I feel like there's a big ego thing with that. Like they just can't like, Oh, I, I'm not a quitter. I said I was going to do it. <laughs> like, 
I, I, it's cool, bro. Like, I, I, right now, I plan on competing. If I have to pull out, I have no problem doing that. But, like, I feel like financially is a huge one. Because, like, there's so many people that, you know, they have trouble buying their suit at the end or getting their tan at the end or just things like, uh, I didn't know I have to buy an NPC car. It's $125. And, oh, my God, it's $125 a class. Which class should I do? I thought I was only going to do a few and things like that just be prepared to spend a lot of money what one thing i'll say as well um is that if you're starting your contest prep where your date of the show has either some something that's after where it's just gonna mess up everything if the show doesn't happen then maybe like a vacation or it's just like this wall if if the show doesn't happen here and it passes, you know, beyond that, there's going to be things there that are going to mess up a prep. Um, going into a contest prep where leeway to move things back or be a little versatile with the show date, I think can cause some issues. Um, and as like just because I could have been a little leaner, but we had a vacation, it was like, okay, either we do this or we just don't. Like, you know, uh, you know, uh, another thing that I've recognized as a coach um, and one of my pet peeves is whenever I see athletes that get so emotionally invested in a specific show, you know, like sometimes I'll have athletes where I bring it up and I'm like, yeah, you know, like, let's say we're 20 weeks out. I'll tell them, yeah, you know, this is our first time doing a prep together. There may be a point where we're at 10 eight weeks out where I think, okay, cool. Let's maybe hit the drawing board a little bit more and, you know, push the date back or, you know, maybe they, they get lean super easy and, you know, in rare situations, I may say, Oh, you may be ready a little bit early. Um, but be stuck on a specific show, um, and not willing to change that is not a mindset that I would say an athlete has that's willing to be that best athlete that they can be. Um, because there's plenty of shows. It, it, it doesn't matter, you know, like, <laughs> I just, yeah, wanted... that's something that I love about competing in Florida, coaching in Florida is like Florida NPC. I don't think there's like a state NPC that has more shows than Florida. Florida has like, people are like, oh, there's shows every weekend. Florida has like multiple shows every single weekend from February, like all the way to fucking December. Like there was a show last weekend and there's one this weekend as well. Like, are you, are you kidding me? It's about to be Christmas and they're still throwing shows. And y'all run good shows. Shameless. Unplugged. Probably don't compete in Georgia bodybuilding. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's Carter. Very un, un yeah. We are unaffiliated with the Florida NPC, but we want to give a, a shout out to the Florida NPC. You, you do a good job. You put down, you put on some serious shows down here. And they're all very competitive, very competitive. Like even Paul's show, like not a ton of competitors in that show, but damn, the people who showed up showed up ready to ready oh, yeah. to fucking like, go. The one that that Brandon and Johnny did, the Mel Chauncey, the Harper Classic. Yeah, that was, that was a good one. Yeah, seems like that's every weekend. <laughs> all right, Andy. Hopefully, we answered your question. That's going to be our final question for the day. We still have one. Three, four, five, six questions left to go. So you know there will be an episode two. Are we going to record it today? Probably not. For Daddy sure. needs some more coffee before anything like that happens. But My we will catch you. Then I'm ready. Your stim just kicked in. All right, rolling into the next question. No, <laughs> just kidding. We'll see you on part two. Always leave them wanting more. Like, comment, subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your dog, tell your parents. The algorithm, what does it do? Stays fucking your boy. So promote us as much as you can so we can get famous and rich. Because that's the ultimate goal. Huh? We don't buy followers. We never buy followers. Never have, never will. All organic. Like our supplements. Try our new supplement. What do we buy, Ryan? What? What do we buy, Ryan? What do we buy? Mm -hmm. Drugs. What do we buy? Okay. What?
don't even know what I just said. Yeah, I don't even know. Cam's the worst. All right, guys. We'll catch you on the next one. As always, you know what to do. Stay gifted. See ya. Bye.